G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane, I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. Now, this last week, a bloke named Neil, uh, whom I've never met, uh, he asked for advice on the, the Facebook uh, page because he was struggling with working from home and it's not because he isn't a good worker, um, I trust that he is, that's why he was asking the question, it's just that it was doing his head in working from home. So Neil said this, he said, I just returned from a week and a half where I saw my son for the first time in five months and my dad and sister for the first time since last September. I know how lucky I am, uh, lucky I was to get this time in but I've now got the worst holiday hangover. Remember when going back to work felt like dying, but then you got to go home in the afternoon. And here comes the question. The short commute between bed and home office just ain't doing it for me. Tips, tricks, advice. This was Neil. Have you struggled, folks, with being stuck at home? Maybe work from home or maybe just being stuck at home generally um, in life. Um, I've heard it said that the real problem with working from home isn't that you feel like that you're always trapped at home. Oh, my goodness, how could I possibly get any work done? Um, It's the opposite. The problem is that you feel like you're always trapped at work and you just never get to go home. I wonder if you've experienced that in recent times. Now, for Neil, of course, he said, that's compounded, isn't it, by this holiday hangover, as he calls it. He's just spent time with the people that he loves in all the world the absolute most, uh, and that felt real and that felt meaningful. But now, well, now he rolls out of bed and into the office chair. And, And that's it. He's trapped at work. No commute to cordon off work life, no colleagues to colour his day. So, what about you? Any tips for Neil? Any tricks? Any advice? Jane's got one. Good one. Brilliant, Jane. You've actually just fed into exactly what I want to say, um, which is not the particulars of your advice, although I think it's good. You see, I noticed this trend in the comments, right? I think your advice is good, by the way, Jane. Thank you. And I like the distinction that you've made between extroverts and introverts. Anyway, look, let me come, come back to here. Um, uh, I noticed this trend in the comments. So Dean had some advice. I don't know Dean. He's got some rules for Neil to live by, and some of them uh, might sound similar uh, to what we've just heard. He says, uh, uh, sorry, Dean says, as advice to Neil, Dean says, I do a fake commute. Ride my bike in an 11-kilometre loop before starting work. It really helps. I always intended to do the same when I knock off, but I just ended up grabbing a beer instead. Uh, Dave, who's a good mate of mine, and he is a bit more introverted, uh, uh, he has some ideas about routines and structure and rules that you should hold yourself to if you're in Neil's circumstance. Dave says, I'm trying to keep my schedule, leaving when I normally head to work, and in my commuting time, I do a walk for the same time and have a coffee. When I get back, I start work, set a lunch break, etc. At the end of the day, I physically put my work laptops away clear the desk, then I change into my trackies and relax, sometimes with a walk around the block. 
Uh, a bloke named Tim seems to set the bar a little bit lower, if you ask me. He says, I made a rule that I have to have a shower. <laughs> he does say more. He says, I have to wear something I'd wear to work and commute time is exercise time. Simon, uh, an, another bloke I know quite well, he goes in for the real detail, like fine grain detail. So he says, you've got to even designate a coffee cup that's just for work, right? Uh, then there's Rob. And Rob, he's from my club, so I see him every month, and this is signature Rob. He doesn't like rules, uh, and he said, I had a bit of a different take on it all. I tried doing all the stick to your regular schedule kind of thing, but found that it was just a big list of shoulds that were making me feel worse when I didn't do them. I think it, I brightened up somewhat when I let myself go, a fair bit, on the understanding that this was just temporary, and with everything going on, I shouldn't expect too much of myself. Now, friends, I think Neil has asked a question about working from home that many of us, although not Rob, it would appear, many of us gravitate towards in all sorts of areas of life. What are the rules that I need to live by, hold myself to in this sphere of life or another in order to succeed? Uh, working from home, give me your tips. Uh, marriage, Give me your seven principles for making marriage work, which, by the way, is the title of an excellent book on marriage. I'd warmly recommend it, um, by John Gottman and Nan Silver. Uh, Jordan Peterson's recent bestseller, 12 Rules, get this, for life, right? You can't get more comprehensive than that. Well, I suppose you can, can't you? But anyway, uh, give me your whatever it is. Fail-proof eight laws on how to study for exams. Uh, your 10 tips to ace my next job interview, three rules to keep my social media habits in check, five bits of guidance for parenting the perfect uh, progeny or whatever it is, six non-negotiables to hold yourself to on the first date. We love our rules, don't we? 10 commandments before the Lord. Do some of us, friends, gravitate to rules and hold laws and commands and tips kind of at the core of how we approach everything in life, even our life before God? Is there a part of us that feels that we are winning in our spiritual life, close to the Lord, nearest to Him, uh, when we're following the rules, even in our life before God, according to our checklist of current performance? Friends, the Gospel calls us, and I think, I hope we see this from Romans 7, the Gospel calls us not to live a life in the grasp of law, but under the grip of grace. Law and rules and advice and tips, they are all well and good, and in fact, I think they are often very, very helpful in their place. But today, I want to ask you about the heart and centre, the core of your life before the Lord. Are we living under law or learning to live in the glorious grip of grace. How about we pray? Long introduction as we come to Romans 7, let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, uh, well, specifically, we, we, as we begin, we do thank you for Neil and Simon and Dave and Tim and all of those blokes who came to Neil's aid, and we thank you for Rob as well, and we, we pray for them, Father, just as we pray for us, in a sense, especially for us this morning as we come to Romans 7, May we learn to live in a world full of laws, lives lived in the grip of your grace. Would you give us a self-awareness about our motives, 
and what drives us, um, our shallowness at times, uh, give us a wonder, a renewed sense of wonder at, and, and gratitude uh, at your grace towards us. And we boldly pray, Father, would you give us lives changed, uh, lives that bear the mark of grace, lives changed for having found our God to be gracious towards us in the gospel of Jesus. And in Jesus' name, we ask for that right now as we come to your good word to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, the Apostle Paul, of course, uh, who wrote Romans, the Apostle Paul never got to meet my mate Rob. Um, if he had, I wonder if he'd have come up with a third category uh, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 14. Uh, if we could cast our eyes back there for a moment, please. There's a bit of a run-up to chapter 7, Romans chapter 6 and verse 14 and 15. I guess we'll never know if he would have come up with a third category, I'm not sure. Uh, Paul says there are two ways, Romans 6, 14 and 15, to lead your life. Uh, for sin, 6 verse 14, shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law but under grace. What then, verse 15, shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? By no means, says Paul. Now, the critical thing to remember as we come to, to Romans, in some ways it seems such a foreign letter to us and from written from such an, an unusual man in some ways, Paul, to a a foreign situation to us 2,000 years ago in Rome. Uh, the critical thing to remember, I think, is that Paul is writing as a Christian who has grown up as a Jew, very much under the law, um, uh, who had God's law, and he writes to Christians in Rome, uh, the majority of whom knew God's uh, Old Testament, uh, knew the law of Moses, his rules and instructions, God's rules and instructions for life in ancient Israel, given in 1300 BC, but to, to extend into the future from there to a people who were fleeing from Egypt uh, and setting up life under God in the promised land, the law of God. Which will it be, O you Roman Christians? Are you living under that law still or will you live under grace, in its grip, under its mastery? And can I just say, uh, let's be sympathetic to our law-abiding uh, ancient uh, brothers and sisters here, because if I could tell you the very words of God for how to live your life before Him in 10 steps, say 10 commandments, wouldn't you want to hear it? Wouldn't you want to know it? Wouldn't you want to, you know, uh, shape your morning commute around it, live by it, reorder your life according to it, figure out a lunchtime routine that gave honour to those Ten Commandments? Let's be sympathetic to them. But Romans 7 shows us in four aspects what it will mean to live not in the grasp of law under its control and mastery, but no, now, since the coming of Jesus, in the grip of God's grace. Firstly, First step, it really does mean letting go of a life lived under law. Read with me, Romans 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. And Paul goes on, he gives an example, and maybe it seems a strange one to us in a sense. He says, for example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if her husband dies, she is released 
from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death, but now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we might serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now, in a moment, brothers and sisters, I'm going to talk about the goodness of the Old Testament law, because that's where Paul goes in just a moment. But we must hear this, mustn't we? And I say this to those uh, of us who really do feel that uh, the Ten Commandments specifically, or reading of the law, um, deserve a greater place uh, in our lives, perhaps in our liturgy here at church, uh, in our language, maybe even in our civil laws as a society. Uh, Paul is saying, no one would begrudge a widow for taking a new husband, knowing that she's released from her first marriage. So, Christian, let no one begrudge a Christian for giving themselves to Christ, knowing that they are released from the obligations they once had to Moses, to the law of Moses, to the ancient law of God. Isn't that the thrust of those first couple of paragraphs? Uh, which may sound weird to some of us. Weird because, well, I didn't grow up learning the law, so, as in the law of Moses, I didn't grow up learning that, so I, didn't, I don't know the Ten Commandments by heart, so it seems odd, I don't need this paragraph in a way, I don't need to know that I've been released from it, because I never felt like I was under it. But to others of us, it might sound like borderline heresy, because you, we do know them by heart. We can recite the Ten Commandments if you'd like us to. We have sought to live by them our entire lives, or nearly our entire lives. Can we agree on this? When Christ died on the cross for you, and when Christ died on the cross for me, we died with respect to the law and its mastery, its lordship, its ruling central influence in our lives. Can we agree on that much? So, verse 4, so, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. And we must be able to say all of that, do you see, without denigrating, without hating on, without poo-pooing the law itself, as if God's law was a bad law, as if uh, it led people to do bad things, those backward, ancient, outdated, you know, evil thing that it was. No, actually, Paul won't allow that. We mustn't allow that. Because secondly, how do we live not under law, but in the grip of grace? Actually, by loving the Lord's goodness, the law's goodness, by being alert, though, to the law's grim influence on us. It's a good law, but it has a grim influence on us. 
or on mankind. Now, see if you agree with me here as we read this next part from verse 7 and following. I think Paul is saying that the law does two things. It does two things. Number one, it clarifies. Oh, wow. Uh, Now that you spell it out, what godliness involves, gosh, it's a bit embarrassing, actually, all of the things that it exposes within me, my track record, the things I've done. Oh, I feel a bit... It clarifies. But secondly, it amplifies in the sense that, oh, you're saying I'm not supposed to do that as well? I'm going to do it. Oh, you're saying I shouldn't do this over here? I'm going to do it. Now that you've said it, I'm going to do it. See, it's got, it clarifies and it amplifies. At least that's what I think it's, uh, Paul's saying here. Verse 7, read along with me. What should we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognised as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. It clarifies and sadly it amplifies, but let's let's not miss that it clarifies. And Christian, here's where I want to say, if you don't know the Ten Commandments, if you grew up and that just wasn't the tradition you grew up in to really focus on the Old Testament, and it's not just the Ten Commandments, isn't it? It's kind of, uh, well, the entire Old Testament in a sense, Uh, but the entire instruction for the people of God in the Old Testament. You didn't grow up with that, uh, you're not particularly familiar with it, you haven't dwelt on it, uh, lived it, you know, looked through it, poured over the rules that God mercifully, and I want to say mercifully, gave to His people that they might live before Him in holiness. Can I just say, you're missing out. There is goodness in there to be seen. You're missing out on having sin clarified for you, And as you miss out on having sin clarified, I'd go so far as to say you miss out then on having the cross of Christ amplified for you. It is good that we know and learn and feel the depths of the horror that it is when we, say, covet another man's wife or his ox or his donkey or his car or his house or her calm and social ease uh, or their kids' achievements or her career. Let's not despise the law's critique just because it exposes all of our cracks. But Paul, uh, you see, Paul doesn't need to persuade the Romans to love God's law, that's not their problem. Uh, He means to prepare them to live instead in the grip of grace rather than under the law. And that means, yes, to see the law's goodness, but are you willing to admit your hopelessness, thirdly, to face our own hopelessness? 
uh, show us that either in our own personal experience or at least as we look back in history at these believers here. Are you willing to face your own hopelessness? And can I say culturally, brothers and sisters, I think we are slow on this one. I think we are reluctant to admit hopelessness. Yes, look, in our culture, we want to say, look, I'm flawed. First to admit it, uh, I've, I've got problems, I haven't been the man that I wish that I was. I think we're quick to say that, to go that far. But are we slow, are we reluctant to say, actually, I am hopeless before the Lord apart from Christ? I think we are slow to go that far, reluctant. Uh, because it seems too harsh. Now here, brothers and sisters, uh, can I just take us on a, a quick aside for just a couple of minutes? Paul isn't talking about how well you can hold yourself to your own standards, right? Paul is not interested in telling you, in, in sizing you up against modern Australian godliness, whatever that would look like. Um, Paul is speaking as one who knew, you know, he was a Pharisee who had almost certainly memorised large swathes, and I mean large swathes, of the law of God to the people that God loved, who uh, had spent, uh, he had spent his life trying to live God's law to the very letter. Paul is speaking to a people who not only knew God's law, they knew as well, they knew the history of God's people and could see in that history the persistent failure and hopelessness of people living up to uh, the righteousness of God, the, the perfection of God. For Paul, the realisation that he could not live under law, that he was hopeless in his own strength, came to him when, I think it was, uh, when he was face to face with the Lord Jesus. And so, if he was to live before the Lord, he had this sudden realisation, if I'm to live before the Lord, it won't be under the law, because I haven't done it. I am hopeless in my own strength. If I am to live before the Lord, it will only be by grace. That was Paul's experience. But for these Romans, and perhaps for some of us, Paul is pleading with us, you want to live under the law? I've been there. I know how hopeless it is, chasing perfection, chasing your betterment, chasing an impossibly high moral standard. I know how hopeless that is. Christian, don't rest your hope in even the loveliest of laws, which the law of the Lord certainly is. Because this, let me tell you, verse 14, this is life lived under the law. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's not like I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner 
of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Do you know what, um, that, do you know what most Christians want to argue over in that section? They want to know, is Paul talking as a Christian? You know, verse uh, halfway through 14, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Sorry, that's verse 15. And that's a pretty relatable sentiment, isn't it? Is Paul talking there as a Christian? Or is he talking as a non-Christian, like a pre-Christian or something, before he became a Christian, verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. How could, how could he say that about a Christian? I actually think the answer to that conundrum is pretty straightforward, but the problem is that it's the wrong question. Um, Paul is saying, guys, Romans, let me tell you what it was like for me. Yes, as a non-Christian, pre-Christian, whatever, but the point is, under the law. Let me tell you what it was like for me, under the law. I can tell you firsthand what it is like to live that way. It is life sold as a slave to sin. And I'm telling you, it is hopeless. It's unlivable. Paul's point is, you Roman Christians, please, please don't live that way. Because you aren't under law. You aren't hopeless. This was me, verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? That was Paul. But don't let it be you, Roman Christians, or us today. Because now finally, verse 25, the very next words, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christian, are you going to be someone who languishes under the law or lives your life in the grip of grace? That's what Paul's placing before us this morning. Verse 25, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, we saw it earlier, verse 4, can you cast your eyes back up there? That is the key verse, verse 4, key verse of the entire passage. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So, friends, do we have any better advice for Neil now? Have we got any better advice for Neil? Now, was Rob right? Forget about the rules. It's a bunch of shoulds. It's just going to become a rod for your back. Uh, better to let yourself go just a bit. Was Rob right? Or were Dave and Simon and the others kind of right? You know, mark out your coffee cups, right? Separate uh, your, um, your spaces, clear your desk at the end of the day, know which ones are your trackies and which ones are your work shirts and make sure you have a shower. Folks, I'm not sure about Neil. Um, in some ways, there is value, isn't there, to, to holding yourself to rules in certain places and certain times and, and setting yourself up in, in that way, knowing yourself as to what makes you tick and, and, and exactly how uh, you are going to respond to them. I'm not sure about Neil, but what does it mean for me to live in the grip of God's grace toward me in Christ Jesus, at the heart of who I am? Not just in the fringes, this little sphere of life or that the heart of who I am, what does that mean? I think it means that when I think about who I am, or when you think about who you are, when I carry myself even God, 
when in my heart I face my own sin and my own regret, when I face your failings and the ways that you've let me down, I think it means that I, I will not, I choose not, I resolve to not be governed and centred on even the very best of laws and the highest of standards and the perfections that we have or haven't attained to. Those standards may be good, they may be informative, they may give me wisdom for how I should do this or that, but I want my sense of who I am before God to be God's grace to me in Jesus and I want your sense of who you are before God to be God's grace to you in Jesus. Are you with me? I want my place before God to be marked out by the indelible marker of God's grace around me. That's where I want to stand before Him. I want to deal with my own sin, with the grace that took it to the cross and buried it with Christ, completely dealt with once for all and raised me to life with Christ on the third day. I want grace to lead me when I'm faced with the decision as to whether or not I hold your sin against you. And what I do with that as we move forward together in our relationships. And I most definitely want you to face my sin with grace. So I'll conclude with this question. If we live lives gripped by grace rather than by law, what do you think? Will that lead us to live lives of lawlessness or fruitfulness before the Lord? So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. Let's pray. Our holy God, our righteous lawgiver and judge, our gracious heavenly Father, our Saviour, when we grow tired of hearing about grace, 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 and it becomes monotonous to us, God, wake us up. When we slide back into 12 rules, 10 commands, 7 principles, 5 tips, lead us back, would you please, to the simplicity of grace and its beauty. When we forget our own hopelessness apart from Christ, our own wretchedness in our own strength, our own lifelessness. Would you grant in your grace towards us that we might see Jesus, please? More that we might show Jesus to one another, show grace toward each other, be bound to one another, not by common laws, but by the grace of God towards us. And so may our thanks and our praise and our hope and our longing be Christ. And we pray it in His name. Amen.